Welcome to the first episode of The Journey, a new audio and video series from SBK. This month, we sat down with SBK ambassador and leading flat jockey, Sean Levy. Sean was born in Swaziland before moving back to the UK and subsequently to Ireland, where he began working in horse racing for master trainer Aidan O'Brien. Levy moved back to England in search of more rides and winners and succeeded when forging a hugely successful partnership with Richard Hannon. Over 650 career wins, five Group 1 winners and one British Classic later, Levy still loves the game as much as ever. This is his story told in his own unique and entertaining way. So first of all, I want to start with your father. Um, what was his background in racing before he moved to Swaziland? Um, weirdly enough, actually, he was... Um, he grew up in Croydon, the rest of his family. They, he was actually born in, in Ireland. The family moved over to to Croydon, and I'm not sure why or how it happened, but he fell in love with horses, and he ended up doing his apprenticeship for Ron Smite and Epsom. Not many people move from Croydon to Epsom and move into horse racing. I know, right? It's weird, one of them. One of his other passions was boxing. Um, and I think at the time there was all his stable staffs, stable staffs boxing, and... Um, yeah, it's one of those, it's a weird move, and but like, you get that in horse racing quite a lot, actually. You know, a lot of people who just fall in love with horses and travel, stay with them, and, you know, like, revolve their lives around it. And he, was, he just happened to be one of those. And then a move from Epsom to abroad, what was the, what was the process then? I think obviously back then you had to, your apprenticeship was 10 years, I think, back then. Um, trainer held your license for 10 years and he didn't quite make the 10 years. That <laughs> was kind of the way it happened. And um, I'm not going to say a falling out or whatever have you, but like he potentially, you know, racing's hard. I think he struggled through it and he didn't finish his apprenticeship, I think, in the end. But, you know, also with horse racing, he, he, he found the opportunity to travel. He went to Germany, Switzerland, and he started racing out there for a bit. And then the move to Swaziland? Um, actually, an aunt of mine, Eileen, she owns a chocolate factory now in, in South Africa. And she, she'd be the youngest, I think, of the family and always got on really well with my dad. And she actually went to South Africa as a bunny girl. You know, with the opening of Sun City and, you know, South Africa was taken off at the time and she moved down there and I think he was kind of in and out of jobs or whatever have you through racing and struggling a little bit and through communication with her, she gave him an opportunity to go to South Africa and, and I think it was manage a hotel or something like that and he took it up. And then they moved to Swaziland where they started a family. As, as, far, as far as my knowledge takes me anyway, I think he ended up in Swaziland because of the people he was working for, for there are many hotels or whatever have you. They had hotels in Swaziland, which he moved over there to manage. And, you know, Swaziland's one of those places, quite captivating, and just fell in love with it and ended up staying there. And what was it like growing up in, in Swaziland? I know, it's like moving from a picture to its negative, I suppose, in, in, in a way. Um... But a beautiful place, you know. Actually, recently, just had I was talking to Adam Kirby. He went down there. He went to South Africa to do the 
um, the uh, jockey challenge or one of those things. Anyway, he was down there and he said like he said he nearly shed a tear leaving South Africa. And I was like, you're only there for five days. <laughs> and he was like, he says, no, but it's just, just that's a beautiful place. And I suppose growing up there was a beautiful thing in itself. It was well, extremely different. I, I didn't leave there until I was 12. So, you know, a lot of the place still lies with me. And did you sit on a horse in Swaziland? Was that was your love of was your father's love of horses passed on to you from a young age? My father's love of horses became quite a big thing in Swaziland. Um, to be fair, um, there was always people that had their stables or whatever have you in Swaziland, and competitively horses were normally structured around eventing and stuff like that. But my dad seen a window, and with the sponsorship of there's really like a few a few casinos and, and hotels. He he was able to build his own racetrack, and you know got people from South Africa to use the place. They they were using it as a stepping stone for their own racing anyway. But he was able to you know build that up. He had his own bookies there called Tattersells. Believe <laughs> him and um, my dad and my mum ran that for many a year. I was very young at that stage, and um, I remember, you know, it, it was lucrative for a long time, and then, you know, as a lot of things do, without the right backing or whatever have you, it, it didn't kind of, it didn't evolve into what he wanted it to be, and it ran his course to a certain degree, and I do remember him having a lot of racehorses, which he then potentially had to retrain into show jumpers and eventing, because that you know, that structure in Swaziland still stood. And he done so. And I think I sat on a horse when I was two. A horse called Squeak. Yeah, he used to a horse called Squeak. And um, I remember he was he was riding it one day, <laughs> for whatever reason. I, I remember being very young and getting on his back and it lost the plot. I remember clinging onto it like a tick, but I was small back then, right? <laughs> and... Um, Never sat on a horse for like, I think, until I was nine after that. But I'd done it on my own back, on the back of that. But like, I remember like that being a situation. And then like, by the time I was nine, he had got rid of all these horses. And, you know, even the bookies was gone by that stage. And then the move back to England, age 12. Yeah, it was one of the, I, was, I had started riding on, I started riding, I got off the bus one day and I went with a friend of mine, he started riding for some reason. I was coming back on the bus and we used to obviously stop past where the yard was and he said, he said, oh, I'm getting off here, I'm going riding. And I was like, really? And like, you know, with Swaziland, you get a, there is a sense of freedom, even, even the way you raised, you know, as kids, like it wasn't a big thing for me to get off the bus from that stop. I went, I'll get off with you, see what all this is about. And I went there and started riding on, I started riding with him. And I remember one weekend, I'd done this like for nearly a month. With no knowledge, my mom and dad, they worked, they worked extremely hard. And like, you know, I was, I was always home before they were. But um, I remember turning around and saying to, saying to my dad one weekend when, I, when I'd learned how to do the sitting trot, or, do you know what I mean? The rising trot, sorry, and all of that, right? And um, I said to him, oh, dad, any chance you can take us down to the yard? And he was like, what are you on about? And I was like, this Sunday, can you bring, can you, can we go down to the stables? And I was like, oh, I'm going to introduce him to all these, do you know what I mean? All these people and the new adventure I'm on and whatever have you. 
And I remember he was like, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I got in the car, drove down to the yard, got in there. He walked out. I was just about to say hello and everybody like greeted him like they knew him like forever. <laughs> I was like, what's this about? I was like, it was, it was quite, um, it was weird, but like, I think that's kind of the way it started with me. It started as my own passion, as opposed to something that was forced upon me or, you know, even wanted of me. It's, that's so important, I think, isn't it? To sort of keep, you know, not to, to make sure it's something that you wanted to do in your life and your career rather than something that just your father wanted you to do. Exactly. And I think he, that's, I mean, potentially that's, I think that's what gave me the bigger love for it is like, it was something that I decided, like I had the background in horses, you know, the, the, the idea was always there and I could always pursue it whenever I wanted to but it was never forced upon me. So I think that that in itself is kind of like what's given me the, do you know what I mean? the, the inspiration to keep doing it anyway, or the joy to do it. And Ireland, you moved to Ireland, was it age 12? I was getting close to my teens and I think my dad, my dad just seen you know, a bigger picture, so to speak, you know? You know, it's, it is great growing up in Africa, don't get me wrong especially in your younger years, but when it comes to opportunity and whatever have you, it's, I'm not saying it's non-existent, it's, it's difficult. And I think he seen more potential over here, especially because I was riding. And I think we moved here, obviously, to fulfill that potential. And your dad w went back to work at Ballydoll, or he had not been there before, was this the first time he had been to Ballydoll? It was the first time. Um, to be fair, like he hadn't rode in years. And I remember even in Africa, he started riding, coming riding with me and stuff, you know, like building himself back into it. And I think, you know, he, that was his idea. That's what he wanted to happen. And he knew coming over here, actually, in fact, he actually moved, we moved to England first. I think he wanted to actually start in England where he started. Um, we find it quite, he found it quite difficult after living in Africa for as long as he did. And, so did, so did we as kids. Like he go to, we moved to Croydon, and I remember look, looking, just buildings and rock everywhere, and it was like, wow. You know, we, we grew up with a, with a vast amount of freedom, and it felt like being caged for a little instant. But I remember when we moved to Ireland, I think he, felt, he thought it'd be better moving to Ireland, and he was right, you know. So we moved over there, and it was a lot easier. And also, like, you know, with the potential of him going working in cool more, like I think it was, it was a better introduction. And what was what was it like for you walking into Ballydoll that first time as a teenager? See, this is the thing. You see, I hadn't seen how yards were before Ballydoll. That was the first place I walked into, so I thought like this is the norm. <laughs> this is the norm. This is what you know. This is what horse racing. This is what horse racing is. This is what we aspire to. And. I didn't find it difficult until I moved to England. Like when I, I done my apprenticeship. It was a very privileged one. Um, I wanted more for myself, not personally. And I moved to England, and I remember actually I was I was with David Amira for a couple of years, and I started up there. And I remember walking into the air, and I was like, "What have I done here?" You know. Um, but it was everywhere. Everywhere I went in England was like, what have I done here? And, but like, it's only because like, I, I'd walked out of Cool Moor. And what was Aidan O'Brien like 
as a as a man to you as a trainer to you did he did he you know you were a young man when you went there did you learn a lot there he took the time he took you know what i mean he took the time to to give you an apprenticeship if you know what i mean like i remember sitting down through a lot of moments you know which when i was learning being told the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do and whatever have you but like I remember being there and actually serving an apprenticeship. You know, you find over here now, so you can take off quite quick over here, and it's just you just it just becomes riding and winners, you know, without necessarily um, benefiting benefiting from actually serving an apprenticeship. But in, in Aidens, I felt like I did serve an apprenticeship. You know, I remember I was signed on for a whole year before I had a first ride. You know, like it was like you had to build to certain moments before you got opportunity, and he had to deserve those opportunities, so to speak. And I remember actually, like, one of the things about doing my apprenticeship over there is that, like, I actually felt like I served one. And you obviously got given some good opportunities. You write a few list of winners and a group winner. I actually, like, I remember not, not understanding the concept of a handicap. <laughs> it's actually a truthful match, like or the concept of having a claim, because I'm, um, to be fair, that was fairly irrelevant for them. Like there wasn't the benefit of you having a seven-pound claim because, of the quality of horse you were riding, it didn't really matter. You know, those maiden winners, list of winners, group winners, group one winners. You know, they're in the business of making stallions, not necessarily just training group one winners. <laughs> and then the move to England, why David O'Mara? I think he was up and coming at the time. Actually, it was um, Mick Maloney, I think it was, a fellow in the yard. And um, he happened to know him. And I was getting to the stage where I was, I was old enough with a claim. And I think a lot of people seen the benefit of, of going to England, especially for me. And... You know, a lot of put them, people put themselves forward and David Mayer was one of the people that come up because he was going really well at the time. Um, it kind of happened like that, really. And then the move to down here locally to where you are now, Heridge and Everly, for Richard Hannon Sr. Um, how did that come about? That was a weird one, actually. Kieran and Neil. I used to live with Kieran and Neil's brother, Brian, um, when I was in, in Aidens and... Kieran was apprenticed to Richard. I wasn't necessarily struggling up north, but I kind of wasn't getting what I wanted out of it. I was struggling with riding out for a hundred trainers and moving up and down the country. And Kieran had a good job in, in Richard's and I was kind of like losing my claim without actually getting anywhere. And I was talking to Kieran one day and he says, I come in and ride out and I come in and ride out. And I kind of seen the potential. It was a big yard which is something I was used to, you were given quite a free reign. And I wanted to save my claim, so I decided, you know, instead of chasing my own tail up north, I thought, like, take the opportunity, and I asked them, would they, would they sign me on? They, they took me up on it, which was great, and I, hi I hibernated for a year, <laughs> and then used, like, I think I had only 20 winners into the season. I used that as a starting point. I lost my 20 winners fairly fast. 
but he allowed me to ride. Obviously, because I started the year as an apprentice, you can finish it as an apprentice. So I actually remember chasing the championship with no claim and done quite well. And Rich Tan Sr. is an incredible character. Tell us what it's like to, to, have, to have worked for him. It's another thing. It's like I went from having quite a well-structured apprenticeship and, you know, got the opportunity up north and then, you know, felt at home, obviously, working for Hannon. But then he was another, you know, another, another, another educational experience. And I remember ringing him when I had, I had, I had five rides from one day in Lingfield. And I rang him up, my first five rides with him. And I rang him, like one o'clock, it was an evening meeting in Lingfield. And I rang him and he was like, um, who's this? And I said, oh, it's Sean. I said, I, I just want to talk to you about these five I'm writing for you today. And he goes, where are you riding? I says, Lingfield. He goes, five? I went, yeah. And he went, well, boy, if you don't know how to ride by now, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You shouldn't be a bloody jockey. And he hung up the phone. And I was like, what? <laughs> but, like, that was the first understanding of free reign and understanding, like, look, at he's done his job, obviously, and, like, it's kind of my job to do now. And it's been like that ever since. And do you think that's the way you like to, to ride as a jockey? Do you think that gives you confidence to be able to, to make your own decisions and learn, learn that way? I think it depends. I think I was, I was at the right time to hear that. You know, I think you can, you can also be an apprentice and hear that. And you have nothing to, you know, you haven't got the foundation to structure that upon. And, you know, it, it could be a bad thing. Um... But when you're old enough and wise enough, it's the best thing in the world to be told that because it, it, it instills a certain amount of confidence in yourself. And yeah, I think I was, it was the right time for me to hear something like that. You know, it could have been very different. If I was younger and hadn't had the, the foundation of the apprenticeship I had had, you know, leading up to it, you know, it could have been very different. And you started riding all, all better quality horses. Um, you started riding in classics. And then a day at Newmarket that you'll probably presumably never forget aboard Bilsenbrook, you did come into the race as a 66 to one shot, but I remember there was, there was some confidence around her that day. Yeah, there was, there was my own confidence around her, that's about it. I remember it was funny, right? Because she was a good two year old. But she, she went up the nursery route. So, like, a potential again to group one level was, she, she was very far behind that. And I remember riding her through the winter, man. She looked awful. She had a winter coat one day. I rode her in Kempton before the nail Gwyn. And there was always something about it, you know. She was, she was a quality horse, there's no doubt about that. A little bit tricky. But, like, some days she'd show you a little bit, you know, show you enough to to inspire you to get the Disney dream. You know, and you think like, oh, actually this could win a group one, but like, she'd only do it the odd time. But I remember riding in the Nail Gwyn and she was keen. Oh, she pulled my arms out all the way down to the two furlough marker. And I actually gave up in the end. Like I, just, I thought, there's no way you can pull this hard and actually finish somewhere. And I let her go at the two. And I remember finishing fourth thinking like, like how did she run that well? 
she also ran in the field that she was going to face in the Guineas anyway. But I remember like thinking like, she was that keen and she finished fourth. And I thought like, you know what I mean? There's a lot to work on here. And she, she worked and she actually worked really well one day. And I remember Tom, Tom Marquand actually, he rode, um, I can't think of the horse's name now. It won the free handicap and it went, it went into the race as a, as a 12 to one shot as opposed to me on the 66 to one shot. And I remember thinking like, I actually wouldn't swap anywhere. You know, because I thought like, no, this thing's actually all right. And I all remember going like, I got a lift with Tom and Holly on the day. And we, we went down the 303, we stopped off the BP garage. And I remember going in and buying like a box of prawns, I always like get prawns. And I actually got the cocktail sauce to go with it, like in the tub and I was sitting in the back just eating the thing. And they were like, what are you, how can you eat that before you ride? And I was like, just chill out Willie's, right? And I went to sleep. And then I got to the races. But like the whole day, I never even went through the race. I was just thinking like, all she's got to do is settle. Like. Do you know what I mean? Just settle and we'll work from there. And I remember her jumping out the gates and I just took her, I took her off her, I let her jump and then I took her off her, off her, off her leg, so to speak. I took her, I took her back, so to speak, right? And she just dropped a lot. Because I think someone, someone, someone swerved in front of me and she kind of half shied. And then as a result, she dropped everything. And I didn't hush her or do anything. I just sat and I went like, that'll do. And I just left her alone. And she just settled the whole way through the race. And I remember like going past the four. I remember looking at the four, because like in Newmarket, you don't see the marker poles. They're actually reversed. So if you're running from the mile, you're the first four furlongs, the marker poles are turned around. So you just see the back of them. So you don't see the numbers, right? So you don't know where you are until you get to the four, because the four is actually the one that's turned around towards you. So I'm looking at it, I'm like, pull, 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 pull. And then I see four. And then you're thinking, right, four. It's still, you've only gone halfway, right? And I remember getting to four and I was like, nah, don't worry about it. Just leave her where she is. I just left her alone. Sylvester D'Souza riding upside me. And he's like, he's starting to get animated. And when he's getting animated, I'm thinking like, just past the four, it's like, he's off the bridle. And I looked at it and it was like, oh no, 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 we're not at the four anymore. <laughs> like we've gone past the three and a half, we're just coming into the two. And I was thinking like, right, now you're in my way, mate. So I actually turned around to Sylvester, was like, let me out there, will you? And he was like, yeah, give me a minute first. Because there's always that concept, you don't, he doesn't want to like, make it quite obvious that he's coming out of my way. He's giving his horse, his horse every opportunity. He was off the bridle from the three. He's coming down in the two. He's still off the bridle, but he's saying like, I'll let you out as soon as my horse like, is done with his running. And I was like, no problem. And like the wind, like it was, what was her name, Lawrence? Lawrence making the running. So there's your potential horse you have to go to catch. And she's like, like 10 lengths in front of me. And I'm thinking, Phew. No, seriously, dude, I need to catch that, right? And then next thing he was like, okay, go on then. And I remember just pulling her out, and it felt like f three strides later, I was upside her. And running into the, like, furlong and a half marker. Like, I was just, like, went from pulling out, I'm just there like that, looking at her. And then, like, then the thing, the imagination, get inspired, don't you? And I was thinking, like, there's no way this can be true. And I went, like, just get on with it. Gave her a kick, and she just took off. She went past Lawrence, down the dip, 
up the hill she's running. But then you start thinking to yourself, 66 to 1, you're in front. There's going to have to be someone that was behind me going as good, do you know what I mean? And you start thinking, oh, you're going to get chased down here. You just get all animated, ah, just rushing for the line. Sense of panic, so to speak, and then you hit the line and it's like, well, it's done. Then you look back of it and you look back at the thing and you're like, oh, shit, I could have been so much more stylish there, you know that? Do you know what I mean? I could have gave that an inspired ride, <laughs> flapping about on it. <laughs> and what was what was the what do you remember sort of from the aftermath and the reaction? Your family, from the yard, from the media, everyone was it was it quite nuts? For me, straight away passing the line was a sense of relief. Gone a long time dreaming the normal dream of winning the derby or whatever have you, and then you get to points in your life where it just become. Oh, I'll take any group one. You know, it's not, it's not as if I didn't have opportunity. Like, I was second in a lot of group ones and whatever, and I just felt like, oh, geez, it's just never going to happen. And over time, it goes from Derby to, you know, I'll take Guineas. Oh, I love a classic. And then it just filters down to just any group one will do at this stage. And I think that's where I was. When I passed the line, I was like, okay, at last. I mean, thank God for that. I thought I'd never get it. I could have retired on the back of it. I was like, That's, that'll do me. But like, that was the first thing. And then there was a lot of other things that happened afterwards, which was, I don't know, unique, a bit rare. I remember when I got interviewed and <laughs> it was a match happening or something. He says, how does it feel to be the first black jockey that I, to win a classic? And I was like, what are you on about? <laughs> and I thought that was weird. And then I have a picture inside of riding a 66 to 1 Group 1 winner. And there's like the whole crowd, right? I've got a picture inside. It's like the whole crowd are just looking at you like that. And there's one guy in the crowd waving about, <laughs> like one person. And it was a packed stand. And I thought like it must have been quite surreal for them as well. Like just going like, you know what I mean? They had backed, obviously, every other horse in the race. And you come across with a 66 to 1 shot. No, no, like crushed dreams, so to speak. There must have been some people you know that were on there. No. <laughs> There's always going to be the guy who tells you, oh, I had a fiver on that one. <laughs> but that's too much. And do you think the confidence that you, you got from that day is, would you say that's a moment that has changed your riding or do you think that you always knew you were that good? No, it's not. It's not. I think I never thought I was that good. You know, I think... And a lot of jockeys, I think, will relate to this. Is um, You get to the point where you know you're good enough. There's no doubt about that. But then without the horse, you know, without the horse, it's the horse that does the running, man. And, you know, I think a lot of a lot of jockeys get to points where you can be quite successful without the opportunity, you know. And you can go a long time. Good horses are, are few and far between. And just getting that opportunity find, to come across one is quite, um, it's quite rare in itself. And you've broken down a lot of barriers yourself, but you've done it by working hard and riding winners. Do you, do you ever see the questions about breaking down barriers in your own ethnicity a distraction? Never thought about it. Like I said, even when I won the Guineas and they said, how do you feel to be the first black jockey to win the thing? I, I didn't really relate to it at the time. Listen, racing is quite diverse anyway. It always has been. You know, if, you, if you've ever walked into a yard, it's, it's, it won't take you long to understand that. And... You know, we were going through a time, I suppose, where diversity was an issue, like globally, not within racing, but just like globally anyway. And 
it reflected into racing. Whereas like, because I was in racing, it, 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 not, I'm not saying it didn't sit well with me, but like I was, you know, taken aback a little bit when I suddenly was, you know, the one opening doors where, you know, as far as I seen it, those, those doors were always open and there for anyone to walk through. You know, I still feel the same now. You know, racing's always been diverse or whatever have you. Yes, it's, it's a niche kind of sport and it hasn't got a direct line as, as most sports do, but, you know, it's, it's, the opportunity is 100% there and it always has been, I think. I think what people didn't understand, like dwelling on trying to make it diverse, it always has been, um, without trying to dwell on the diversity of it all, was you should probably concentrate more on... Um, advertising the fact that the opportunity is there for everyone, you know? And I think that's why that's that's kind of what we lacked on really. It's just people don't get it. And to be fair, anyone in racing after a while you 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 tend to understand that we kind of live in our own little bubble. You know, it's not it's not very open to the public. For the normal world it's very hard to understand, but at the same time it doesn't mean that you can't walk into it tomorrow and see for yourself kind of a thing, you know? And Sean Levy as a jockey now, you've ridden countless Group 1 winners now, you've ridden, you've ridden some top-class horses. What continues to motivate you? I, I don't know, I suppose I like it. Well, got to love it, don't you? It's a life choice now. It's, it's, not, just a, it's not just a game anymore. Like it's, it's, my, it's my livelihood. And I'm just lucky enough and privileged enough that, that, that I enjoy it. I think that's basically what it's become now. And do you have any future goals? Do you have any more targets you want to... Ah, minor things. I'm kind of quite content. And I tend to enjoy it more, you know. I just enjoy it. I, you know, that's just the best way of saying it. I just enjoy doing it. But um, I've got minor goals now. Need to get to the 100 winners. You know, that's eluded me quite a lot recently. I normally go down with some sort of an, itch, an injury or some, something normally stops me from reaching that goal, but it's now become the monkey on my back kind of thing. You haven't rolled the 100 winners, so like that needs to, that needs to get that sorted. But other than that, no, I'm, I'm good, man. Just like, just want to continue enjoying it, making the best of opportunity, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's like one of those, like you find, you find good horses in the rarest of places. And there's, there's, there's a nice thing about riding, not necessarily your favorites and, I'm not I'm not privileged enough to have like the the full on opportunity where you're riding favorites in every group one all the time. So ultimately, I mean, you're sitting at a quite a high percentage of group one winners. But I do enjoy finding the the rare group one winners, the flukes, so to speak. You know, the ones you kind of believe maybe as such, and then they do. And you know, there's a lot to be said for that. We're gonna do very quick, quick fire now. So, favorite sport outside of horse racing. Golf is becoming a very um, expensive, expensive but very enjoyable sport to follow at the moment. Is your handicap coming down quickly? No, it's not. It's going up. <laughs> Race you'd most like to win around the world? Um, I just need an international winner. I'm at that stage, any will do. Favourite race course? I've always loved Chester. Best horse you've ever ridden? I remember having a debate with Aiden. Um, 
and it was between, this is just ridden, not on a race course or whatever have you, but just ridden, and I believed George Washington was the best horse I ever rode. He believed Rip Van Winkle was better. I rode the two of them, I stuck with George. Best horse ever. Ooh, it's a mix up, depends. Depends what you're looking for. Like, you can go ultimately just the best, you'd say Frankel, right? I thought all around character, Everything you want in an animal, everything you want in a superstar, right? I always said see the stars. Best friend in the weighing room? Everybody. <laughs> no, I'm actually quite, I'm good with everyone. Everyone everyone brings something different to the table. Funniest person in the weighing room? Funniest? Huh. Ah, let's be fair, they're all a boring bunch of Who's the grumpiest? That's the easiest. Me. <laughs> if, it's, if it's any less than 15 degrees, I'm the grumpiest person in the world. A favourite TV racing personality? I do like Chappers. He's a controversial old character, but like, I do enjoy it. Best ride you've ever given a horse? Mom's tip, and I got beat, right? I actually said this to the owners on the way in. Mom's tip last, was it last week? In that, in that, in that um, handicap, right? I mean, best horse, best ride I've ever given a horse, and I finished second. Worst ride you've ever given a horse? <laughs> no, there's a few of them. <laughs> That's debatable. <laughs> Apparently, when I won on King James, Senior said the worst ride I ever gave a horse was King and Change when I won the QE2. Since I went too soon. Way too soon, he said. <laughs> on that subject, which trainer has given you the biggest telling off? God rest his soul, I nearly hung my boots up one day after a bollocking from Desi Hughes. And finally, if you owned a horse, which jockey would you get to ride it? Can't be you. There used to be, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to tell you this, right? But there was, we used to have an apprentice. I don't know where he is now, actually. Gary Mann, right? <clears throat> Gary Mann, won, he rode a horse one day, right? And um, he was having his third run. It was in Chepstow. We had a horse that was very well fancied in the race, Dobsey Road. And um, before Dobsey went out, Gary Mann was riding the other one. Receding Waves, his name was, right? So uh, Dobsey's riding the other one, and Dobsey said to Gary Mann, he says, um, you know I mean, run your races, and, you know I mean, run your race, whatever have you. So, Gary's like, ah, no problem. So Dobsey on the favourite, boom, hits a two for Ellen Mack, and he's out in front. Thing. Who comes by him? Here comes Gary Mann, <laughs> straight by him, right? Wins the race. He's giving it, you know what I mean? He's giving it the, the full seven, the lot, right? So anyway, he wins. Next thing Dobbsy says, look, I don't mind that you won the race. And Gary just looked at him and he said, if you book Gary Mann, you don't get anything less than 110%, right? And I thought it's like the best quote I've ever heard in my life. For a friend, so to answer that, I'm getting Gary Mann. What a way to finish. Sure, thank you so much, that was great.